we should learn that collaborating is easier than fighting. Bridges are more difficult to build than walls, but much more rewarding. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Today, we are delighted to have as our guest, Ms. Michaela Imsch. Uh, Michaela is the author of the new book, From Nature's Mouth, the Handbook for Bioinfused Human Communication. She's also, interestingly, very interesting background, communications marketing specialist. She's a translator, cultural mediator, biomimicry practitioner, safari guide, keen naturalist, and biology enthusiast. Michaela, welcome to EEI. Oh, hi, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. This is great. Well, look, you we've had many guests on this podcast, but none with such an intriguing and interesting background such as yours. The whole idea of communication is extremely important for the world where we are today. Uh, the audience of our podcast, mainly folks from the energy industry, is in the midst of seeing our industry go through a major transformation, a major transition. And one of the reasons I was intrigued by the book is because communications is so central to what we're doing. And I don't think we've done a good job in being able to communicate uh, as an industry, but also as a society and as a global community. And what I see you doing in this book is to bring a different approach to see there's something we can learn from nature. So to start about, to start, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got into biomimicry? Yeah, so thanks for asking. Uh, biomimicry is finally the discipline where I feel at home. Uh, let me explain that. I've, I've discovered biomimicry quite recently, actually. It, uh, it was last year in, uh, in August that uh, I was home, bored, like most people during COVID. I was looking for something to learn. Went back to the training institute that I used to become a safari guide looking for something to learn remote uh, while I could not travel. And uh, there it was, an introduction to biomimicry. And as soon as I started learning about it, I realized that biomimicry basically connects all the dots of my past endeavors, loves, and, and uh, all the disciplines that I like to bridge. And I felt at home and uh, decided to uh, pursue if anything was going on in the biomimicry world uh, and that could bridge with communication. And since there was apparently nothing written about it, I decided to write a book. Well, that, that is a very interesting uh, sort of a way to enter into a very complex field. And you're not a biologist. So, so just briefly, what were some of the um, interesting learnings you got as you entered this field of biomimicry? What were some of the things that surprised you? And what were some of the things that you said, oh, wow, I knew this already? Uh, I think the the method of biomimicry is frames very well with my Germanic uh, my Germanic need for models uh, and rigor. So the biomimicry methodology is is quite rigorous and makes sure that we think of everything while we develop a solution, uh, and especially that this solution uh, is con conducive to life in the future. So it's a very complete and and thorough way of investigating and learning from nature about instead of learning about nature. You, you learn from the uh, processes, the systems, the forms, the functions. Everything is defined in functions in nature. Everything is flux, and such is the way also in communication. It's only about the flux of communication. A communication can never be stopped. Uh, so in nature, things flow. In communication, things flow. So I can see a huge overlap between these two fields. Interesting. And and you begin the book with a very interesting legend, the legend of the hummingbird. Uh, why did you choose that sort of a introduction to the book, maybe, in terms of uh, the analogy you were trying to lay out there? Why the hummingbird example? Yeah, so the, the legend of the hummingbird is, uh, is to show that we all have to contribute to a better world uh, or to uh, changing the paradigm we live in or uh, in the industry we, we, we function in, 
And to be transformative, each of us has to realize they are part of the system. We make the system. And it's, since we make the system, we can be activated, use verbs and be the system, which means, of course, that since we are the system, we can change it. Mm, yes, everybody should do their own little, their own part, their own little piece of the pie uh, or add a little bit to the pie to make the pie big and so that we can all benefit from that. I think it's interesting. And we'll come back to that idea of you doing your little piece and I doing my little piece and how you bring it all together. So let's jump in the book and, you know, what you talk about in the introduction, you lay the framework about, um, you know, what got you into this space. And then you started talking about definitions. So can you just talk about the difference between communication in nature and communications in our sort of uh, our, our reality, if you may? I think uh, basically in nature, there's only two phenomena that happen. One thing is a transmission of a message to the future. That's one thing. That's what's happening when your DNA codes for the next generation. Basically, we are communicating with the future through our DNA. And the other thing that happens in nature is in order to be able to send this message, we have to live. And life is only about energy and the energy of the natural world is carbon. And so everything is about, the process is about carbon and the result is this message into the future. So it's only about communication and enabling this communication. So nature is basically only communication. Life is communication and communication is life. So, so then, so that's nature. And, you know, you talk about the 21st century communication systems, you talk about data overflow, information overflow. What, what is, what is different in terms of how we communicate as humans uh, and how other species communicate? Uh, just to give you a, a simple um, analogy, I was talking to my daughter about this idea about the plants communicating after I had spoken to you. And she said, well, daddy, the plants don't communicate. And I said, sure they do. And they said, no, they don't. They don't speak, right? And so many people attribute communications to speech. What have you observed in terms of the difference between how we humans communicate and all the other ways communication occur in nature? That's a great question. Uh, we humans communicate all the time, especially when we do not communicate, we also communicate something. You cannot not communicate. We are a, a social species. We have a, a, a way of collaborating, which is unseen in the rest of nature. If you look at the pen I'm holding here, which you cannot see because I'm in a podcast, but you look at a pen, how many people have been involved in the creation of this pen? Creating the plastic, finding, creating the ink, uh, extracting uh, different components from the earth, uh, molding it, sending it to me, uh, selling it to me. I mean, I think it's, it's at least 200 people have touched this pen in some form or way before I could use it here to, to take my notes. So we forget that. We think we're isolated. We, we feel isolated uh, sometimes in the 21st century because we do not, we are not always parts of groups that let us in. There's lots of exclusion happening. Uh, there's lots of uh, isolation because of COVID. People feel, feel lonely at home. Uh, they feel excluded of, of society. But we have to uh, remember that we are the most social of all animals, uh, the most social of them at all. And in nature, uh, just like in humankind, uh, you only communicate with purpose. Uh, there's always a purpose that is fulfilled. Uh, Nature will not disperse resources or energy that has no purpose. Uh, maybe that's the big difference between humans and nature. We tend to talk to talk, you know, fill in the void, uh, which is also a purpose. But is it always a useful purpose that we're, that we're trying to fill with our words uh, or our actions? I'm not sure. It's a question more than a an answer i'm sorry <laughs> no but it's a good question because i think you you're what you're doing there is sort of a setting things up for us to understand you said purpose driven or purposeful communication and i think we don't realize as you said every form of interaction is a form of communication uh, i hadn't thought about it that way and you 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 know when you think of the supply chain of of life in terms of the pen you use as an example 
there are many other things we take for granted. Those things have gone through various transformation and every transformation involves some degree of communication. Um, we'll come back and talk about the energy system because you did mention carbon and carbon being an important thing and a lot of discussion today about carbon reduction and, and the whole energy system going to transformation. So I thought it was interesting for you to mention carbon. But I wanna move now to talk about, you called it the eight challenges for communications in the 21st century. And ironically, uh, or more, not ironically, but interestingly, uh, all of them begin with the letter C. Yes. Right? Uh, and obviously we don't have enough time for you to go through all of them, but um, I've, I've identified a few of them that I think would be interesting for this, for this audience. Uh, first of all, uh, why don't you list all eight of the challenges? And then I will tell you the ones that I think we would love to have a conversation when you're about. I'm lucky to have my book just next to me because I don't remember them. <laughs> you know? They all start with C, which was a trick to, for me to remember them better. But uh, yeah, let, let, let's go through them. So there's a communication overload, censorship and access to information, complexity, confidence and trust, culture and community, codes and mores, collaboration and innovation, clarity and truth, and consequences and responsibility. Those are the eight challenges. And, and, and I can tell you that all of them, if we had time, would require its own podcast, because as I look through them and I look at them, I think it's fascinating that you laid it out that way. And I've never seen this sort of a, many times when you talk about the communication challenges of the 21st century, people talk about, you know, you know, information overload, of course, and you have too many spheres of information coming into you. But I think four of them that I would like for us to dig a little deeper into, or maybe, yeah, four of them. The first one is communications overload. Uh, how does that get addressed in the context of nature? Uh, is, are, are other species less overloaded than we are? How is, how is communication overload addressed in the context of biomimicry? Yeah, so in order to, to see how uh, nature can filter out uh, polluting noises uh, fr from the, the, the main or the most interesting parts for, 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 of communication uh, for a species, I took the example of the weekly electric fishery. The weekly electric fishes are, are quite amazing creatures. They live in, in streams and uh, there's two families. One family is in South, Africa, uh, South America and one is in the savannas of Africa, uh, of course, in the rivers, in the savannas, not, not running on, on, on the earth. Uh, they have a very interesting mechanism, meaning that they, they have an organ that emits electricity, an electrical field around them, and it comes back to them uh, through uh, the water. Uh, and it will be like a, like a form of echolocation, which we call electrolocation. It will find uh, it will find sexual partners. It will find food this way because, of course, in these uh, in these streams, it is very dark and very dirty, very murky water. So they cannot rely on their eyes, and most fish re rely on their eyes, which they have huge, of course, as you as you know, which means it's a dominant sense for them. So these ones are kind of going blind. So they try to, to, to see around them through electrolocation and it seems to work because they're still around and both uh, families of these fish, uh, the, both the South um, uh, American ones and the African ones seem to have evolved into the same direction without having a common ancestor. So that's a way nature can blur out what is not of interest for a species while amplifying uh, what they need to do to continue their life. So how do we apply that to our form of communication then? How do we apply that lesson from the weekly electric fishes to our communication overload that we're dealing with in the 21st century? So the idea is to grow a new organ, <laughs> of course, <laughs> and to start uh, electrolocating. No, of course not. But we can add a trick to, to our way of doing things is we should add filters when we search about things and we should add filters uh, and or maybe tag things when we emit them in order for people to be able to, to extract uh, communication that is useful to them. 
So when do we when do we start teaching that skill, do? Because if you if you're a young child growing up, I have young kids, and and you know they're they're like just sucking every piece of information that's coming to them. They don't have any filters. They're just you know, and it's up to us as adults to kind of help them filter. But how how do one how does one develop the ability to filter overload? As we as we develop, whether in the university setting or in, in school setting, or in just in society, I mean, if someone listen to this podcast and say, "Look, Michaela, I have all this information coming to me. I'm not an electric fish. So, what do I need to do to to filter some of this noise to be able to sort of communicate properly?" I think, unfortunately, it is not taught in this way. Uh, I know some some places in the world have critical thinking classes for kids, which I think is a great idea, you know, uh, as well as well as these, uh, this filtering corroboration of information, a critique of sources is, is also an aspect that should be taught in schools uh, or by parents. Uh, the, the problem is the parents have to be aware of the problem uh, as well as you know, it, it, it's easier to put a filter on your computer saying parental guidance uh, rather than teach it. I think it's it's a very, very important uh, ability that we should teach our children and also lead by example. You know, mm. um, m- most of what our kids do is really uh, imitation. Interesting. And, and, and so I, I like that imitation. And, and the question is, how do we as uh, as society start to teach the importance of filtering uh, and filtering in a much more efficient way. Uh, let's move on to the next C, um, Michaela, which is complexity. Uh, you're based in Switzerland. Uh, you were, this uh, this week, uh, you were involved in a, a conference uh, in, in, the, in organized out of the US, but it was virtual on complexity. Um, and you list complexity as one of the challenges. So let's get an example of complexity in nature and how can we learn from nature to be able to manage complexity when it comes to communications? This is a very difficult one, (laughs) but I'm glad you asked. Uh, Complexity is everywhere in nature. Uh, You can see all the interactions, all the systems, all the the biomes, the biosphere, everything is very complex because it is multi-layered from the nanoscale to the macro scale. Everything is linked and everything is intertwined. So nature is by essence complex. And it's also has the, the different individuals have agency. If you look at animals uh, mainly, uh, I don't know, maybe plants have agency too, to a certain extent. And as soon as you have agents and incentives, you get into a complex world. Uh, the way uh, nature solves it, uh, let's take the example of a, a termite mound, which is not in the book, uh, but a, a termite mound is constructed by very, very simple uh, instructions given to specialized workers. They will go out and you know they will put the little piece of dirt that they have chewed at the right place because they will have been guided by a pheromone, which is still recent, and it will repair the termite mound, and that's all it's going to do. It, it doesn't know to do anything else than go get dirt, chew it, and put it exactly where the, the previous a termite will have put it. So it's very, very simple um, self-organizing properties that emerge and the complexity is the result. And that's what we did also when we constructed cathedrals or, or power plants, you know, they're the very, they're the addition of very simple processes and, and, and the result is just awesome. Hmm. So it's almost like we, we, Complexity emerges out of simplicity, exactly uh, to an extent, right? Uh, and so, from learning from nature in terms of communication, uh, we have a lot of vexing issues facing the world today: climate change. We have issues around poverty. We have injustice, social injustices. We have a lot of challenges facing us. Um, how how do we uh, how do we go from the complexity of communications to simplifying it? But still not losing the, um, the, 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 the difficulty, right? So as much you simplify the problem, but you don't trivialize it. How do you, how do you go from this complex to simple? How do you do that from a communication standpoint? 
It is very difficult. It is one of the biggest challenges uh, for communicators like me. I've been active for 20 years and in, in the business of, you know, healthcare and, and uh, medical uh, appliances at the beginning. And, you know, these are fields that are highly scientific and very complex and very complicated to explain as well. And this whole vulgarization is the most difficult, but the most rewarding uh, in, in communication. Because as you say, you try to simplify, but not to trivialize. Uh, I think one way of doing it is starting, you know, by saying, okay, let's, let's have only five points, five main points. And then you can add the long context behind it. And, and people who will be interested in one of the five points will go on and read about it and give resources to people to know more about something. You don't have to explain everything, but, you know, guide people into the right direction and say that it is complex, but try to make it in manageable parts. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the complexity as we talk about uh, the energy system is going to transformation. Many systems are going to transformation because of climate change, which in of itself is a very complex problem or a wicked problem that more and more people talk about, which means the other C you talk about has to work, which is collaboration and innovation. And so uh, can you give us an example of uh, collaboration in nature from a communication standpoint and how can we apply that uh, to the real world or to the human world, if you may, uh, this idea of collaboration and innovation. Collaboration is everywhere in nature because it is a systemic uh, component of nature. Uh, things work together or against each other. So collaboration is a very important part. Uh, I think I have a couple examples in the book uh, of the case studies uh, where you can see collaboration. Uh, one of them is these uh, humpback whales that fish together. Uh, so they, they use a technique called the bubble net uh, fishing technique. So the, 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 the humpback whales will create a spiral of bubbles underneath the water, underneath a school of fish, for example. And they will be there have to be more than one humpback whale because otherwise they cannot create these bubbles at the right uh, at the right moment. So they coordinate and they create this net around or underneath the school of fish, which will confuse them and will concentrate uh, the fish they wish to eat into the smaller and smaller space. And then while one of the humpback whales continues to do these bubbles around uh, the school of fish, they will shoot through the school of fish from below and with, with their mouth open and eat all the fish in ter taking turns. This is absolutely great. You should watch videos that have been taken of that because it is so amazing and so beautiful to watch. Uh, so that's a very high level of collaboration in a species that is a mammal but not a known mammal to be very, very smart. So, so how do we, you know, given the challenges we're facing as a global community, and obviously climate change is one of the big ones that is on everyone's mind these days, how do we, how do we learn from nature how we should collaborate? Because you did say that collaboration, you can collaborate towards, uh, you know, a certain goal, or you could sort of uh, work against yourself. So, so as a society, as a global community, when we talk about the transformation of energy systems, we just went through COVID-19. Um, how do we foster greater collaboration? What can we learn from nature? Or how can we look at nature and say, this is something we should be doing as a human species to foster greater collaboration? Well, lucky, luckily, that's one that we're starting to, to master. Collaboration is pretty... Uh, I think on the good way, uh, we're, we're on the right path with that. Uh, it is very important to have diversity in your teams. It is very important to bridge disciplines. It is very important to go beyond your silo. It is important to have another perspective. It is important to sometimes to hire consultants to have an, a fresh look. Uh, it is important to have people with a beginner's mind that ask the silly questions, which is, what I love to do in a company, go and ask the silly questions. Uh, you need to calibrate uh, in order to see the system and 
to see the transformation that is needed. And that's something that uh, as a highly collaborative species, we're, we are kind of doing already. And it, it, it's, it's getting more and more uh, important and people have realized that diversity is the key here. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing I wanna talk about is consequences and responsibility. And, and the reason for that is because we, we do things today that will have consequences decades from now. And there's an author who we actually also interviewed in one of our global series, uh, Roman Scanaris, who's written a book called The Good Ancestor. And the idea is to think long-term and to think about the consequences of our actions today for generations to come. In the context of communication, uh, how do we think about consequences when we communicate and, and, and what can we learn from nature? What examples can you see where there are consequences being considered before uh, an action is taken or before communication is carried out? Can you give us a few thoughts on that? In, in, in the wider, uh, in the wider uh, conversation, I think consequences are the only thing that is really important. Uh, think of what you're saying. Be kind to people. Know that everything you say will have an impact. You, you can break someone with a word. You can also heal someone with a word. You, you can foster, uh, you, you host people with wor words. You're a great host, by the way. <laughs> you, you know, communication allows for, for feelings and, and, and we are sentient beings and we need to see that the words we use will be used against us if they're not thought out well. So that's a very important, uh, a very important um, aspect. And that's actually the last C I have, because I think it's very, very important to, to, to be aware that what we say, especially on the internet, is here forever. Hmm. It will never be erased, even if you erase your, 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 <laughs> your post, mm -hmm. your angry post. Sometimes we're angry. And... Uh, Sometimes we're angry, and even when we're angry, we should be aware of what we're saying. It will not, you cannot take words back. Once it's broken, it's broken. Uh, what you can see in nature is uh, symbiotic relationships. They only persist if the partners to this relationship or to this uh, communication relationship uh, can trust each other. Mm -hmm. And so trust is built through watching how we speak to each other. You, everybody has to have some skin in the game as well, and collaboration and trusted collaboration. Otherwise, this symbiotic relationship will fall apart and both partners will lose. I, I do like the, the, the phrasing that, you know, you know, words can heal and words can encourage or words can break people down. And as we think of communications, I wrote in, as I was marking up the book, uh, speech is one form of communication, right? We use speech a lot. Um, but then there's also the unspoken form of communication, right? That you don't say words, but you just, you may act, you may feel, you may look at a person. Can you talk about some of these nonverbal communication approaches and what can we learn from nature where a plant doesn't speak, but I'm sure, listen to you, plants do communicate. Right, but it's not a communication that we perhaps understand. So, can you talk about these nonverbal forms of communication and what we've learned from nature as it relates to those? Yes, in in human communication, nonverbal communication, I think, is over seventy percent uh, of communication. Uh, we see each other, but the people who are going to listen don't see us, so they have to rely on on the thirty percent of our communication now to understand what we're trying to say. They cannot see me moving my hands trying to explain something to you. Uh, so it is, a, we are mainly uh, speaking and writing species, but we also, of course, communicate through gestures and even pheromones. You know, some people, in French, we have a saying, je peux pas le sentir. There's people that you cannot smell. You know, people that you, you just feel uncomfortable uh, about and, in French, it's, it goes through the, the, the sense of uh, smell. Uh, I cannot smell him. Uh, he, he doesn't, his smell doesn't fit me. So, uh, yeah, we communicate through that. And in nature, there's lots of communication that is nonverbal, of course. You have, of course, all the visual communication 
uh, of attitudes. Look at your pets, your cats, your dogs. Uh, they communicate with you uh, mostly non-verbally. They come to you, they sit on your lap, they put their ears on your feet, they show you that they're around their food corner and that there's nothing left in, in there, please feed me. They sit in front of the door to come in and out. Uh, so that's uh, very, very uh, visible for us uh, around us. There's also communication, of course, in some realms that is only sentient uh, through, through smell. Uh, all pheromones, all different smells, uh, marking your territory with urine is one of the most, uh, uh, most visible ones, uh, the ones that everybody knows about. Uh, then there's a chemical uh, chemical warfare is going on in your garden at, at the moment we speak. I know you started planting a garden, so now you have a war going on in your garden. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, some plants are getting chewed by insects and are sending pheromones into, into the air to, to, to tell the other plants to create um, toxins uh, so as to save themselves from these predators. It's, it's going on everywhere all the time. I always love it when people sit in their gardens like, oh, look at how calm this is. And you have no clue. If you start looking at the soil, if you start at looking uh, at the bottom of grasses, there's genocides going on. There's <laughs> It's just we can't hear it, you know? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, does, does that mean then uh, that we should perhaps start thinking about teaching nonverbal communications in schools? Because I think, you know, most of the communication that is done today is done, like you said, through speech. I mean, the ones we're aware of, where you go to school, your teacher teach you how to read, write, uh, how to pronounce words, and enunciation. But I think the nonverbal communication, especially in geopolitical environments, when we talk about you know, climate change negotiation, is it so much what is said as opposed to what is not said? And how do you, how do you interpret what is not said? Uh, can you talk about that? How do you communicate the nonverbal? How do you understand nonverbal communications? Purely by imitation. Uh, we are an amazing species of imitation. We do learn these nonverbal cues from the people around us, which makes it also a little bit problematic because it's culturally sensitive. You will learn the codes of your community or from of your culture, and then if you transpose, let's transpose me to Japan, I will have absolutely wrong codes for nonverbal cues. So it's also something, if we, if we teach nonverbal uh, communication, which I think is a great idea, or at least, you know, kind of make people aware of what their communication is and how they can read other people, uh, I think we should... Uh, do it in combination with cultural awareness. Because, well, because you really have cultural biases in, in nonverbal. Well, so one of the reasons I asked the question, and for the audience, this was not pre-planned. So in your in your bio, you are, you were looking at the nexus of multiculturalism and intercultural communications as part of your, your previous work. So I think it's interesting that you bring up the issue of of you know, cultural uh, learning so you can understand how to do these nonverbal cues. One, one, one question before we talk a little bit about some of the, what you call the 13 sparks to ignite our bio-infused communication. Just coming back to the intercultural communications piece, you're living in Switzerland, a country that has a very interesting history, uh, two languages, if you may, uh, and, and three, by the way, or four, <laughs> four languages. Um, how how does this mixture of languages uh, um, sort of a re, you know represent itself in real life in terms of what we've just discussed? This idea of having different nonverbal but also verbal communication. So when you're from the German side, Switzerland, and you meet a, someone from the French side, how does nonverbal communications work in that context for someone who moves to Switzerland? and I'm dealing with a Swiss, but the Swiss is German and the other Swiss is French. How does one condition the mind for that type of a communications? I, I think it's all about tolerance and respect. I mean, uh, we have four cultures in our country. 
one con one language you've never heard of is Romansh, which is an official con uh, language in our country. It's even in our currency, but I think it's only 60,000 people that speak it. But yet it is an official language, which also shows the tolerance and respect for these people. Uh, the the nonverbal between the different communities is nowhere as funnily uh, illustrated as a guy from Zurich, uh, German speaking, that goes on holidays into the Italian speaking part of Switzerland and tries to order something. It is the funniest thing to watch. But you learn, you learn by practicing. I think. Uh, People are usually quite friendly and open and they know the flaws of the other culture and your flaw. And uh, yeah, we make it work together. We collaborate. Uh, Michaela, you have lived around the world, at least several countries, and you're, you know, you've studied and you work on intercultural communications. What have you found to be one of the most intriguing lessons from biomimicry in terms of being in a safari where you have all these animals just coexisting uh, and grazing the same area, you you look at the the you, you look at them and they're not fighting, they're not tearing themselves apart except when they're hungry, I guess. What have you learned from biomimicry that we can apply to our world today to bring about a much more cohesive world when it comes to collaboration, partnership, less wars. Uh, agreement on climate change. I mean, what can we learn from nature in terms of this huge diversity we have as a global community that we can we can sort of uh, hope to apply? I think teamwork makes the dream work is the only thing. You know, we should team up. We should listen deeply. We should practice empathy. We should be kind to each other. We should learn that collaborating is easier than fighting. Bridges are more difficult to build than walls, but much more rewarding. And we should really bridge uh, cultures, communities, disciplines, age groups. You know, we have to go through, through this process of looking at issues and systems from all perspectives and finding common ground to, to decide on, by consensus, which is a very Swiss value, consensus uh, and, and collaboration to get to the best outcome for the greater good hmm. and the greater think, part of society. Do you think that could apply to the economic system? Because one of the challenges we have today uh, is uh, the whole idea around there are those who are saying we have to sort of reinvent capitalism, we have to reinvent market systems, uh, we have to have a much more inclusive uh, economic system. Can we can we can we learn something from nature in terms of how how the economic system should work so that it can be more inclusive so it can be sort of a more regenerative if you may? I think if you look at nature and you see that the the species that we're looking at uh, are the winners they have gone over five mass extinctions and are still here so they're absolute heroes uh, we're learning from the best and you can see that the species that are here, there's very rarely not a collaborative uh, relationship with another species. So mm -hmm. everything is intertwined. And I think that is the key we should uh, look at uh, in the economic system to be more collaborative. What is very interesting in biomimicry is if you have a bare piece of soil, uh, let, let's say you, 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 you build a house and you have a bare piece of soil after that, right? Uh, next to it or on the sidewalk. There will be fierce, fierce, fierce competition for this uh, piece of soil. It will try to be colonized by insects, by all kinds of plants, by seeds, everything. It's going to be massive war until this piece of land then becomes inhabited by plants and animals. And at one point, the collaboration will take the place of the competition because the system will have gotten the right level of life, and it will be better off by collaborating. I wonder if we're very far from that moment in the human society when competition will be outgrown by cooperation because there's enough of energy for everybody. That would be a fascinating time to live in when we have collaboration and cooperation, the dominant thing as opposed to competition. Uh, I'm sure there are 
economists out there who would disagree with you and say that competition is the best way to spur innovation. But what you're saying is that collaboration and cooperation is perhaps an even better way to spur cooperation and, I mean, innovation. Just quickly about the 13 Sparks. Yeah. Um, tell us about them and why you think they're important for us to understand these Sparks as we think about applying bioinfused communication in our world today. So how, how did they come to be is maybe the where we should start is, so I started by listing the eight challenges to human communication in the 21st century. And by looking at these different uh, challenges, I derived 13 functions that we can find in nature to help us uh, to answer to these challenges. And these 13 sparks are the answers from the natural world transposed again into human uh, solutions. So these are the 13 sparks. And the 13 sparks, very funnily, I was, as I was doing this process of finding solutions in nature and retranscribing them for human purposes, I realized they all fulfill communication needs in the human cell. So I was very surprised because I did not plan for that. So in the end, uh, we should communicate like cells because on another, on another scale, we are cells of organisms that are our communities. We are cells of countries, our bodies maybe, you know? And so we should really try to get inspired by how cells communicate and how they collaborate and how they make up a great tissue uh, for, for the greater good. So, and, and the sparks, the sparks you've come up with, I mean, you said 13 of them, can you just say one or two of them that you think will be very, very useful for, for our industry, meaning the energy industry where we're going through transformation and major changes there? Um, you know, what are some of the sparks we should be thinking about as an executive working for an electric company, say in Switzerland, you know, someone at Swiss Grits, for example, who might be listening to this, what should they take away in terms of sparks for them to be much more in tune with the bioinfused communication approaches? I think one of them is let us innovate through communication and communicate our innovations. Uh, without communication, you cannot innovate. Uh, it's collaboration, it's co-working, it's uh, looking at things from different angles. So we should communicate about our innovations and foster innovation through communication. And I think it is great that you are having this podcast on this, you know, international uh, level or inter, at least interstate level uh, in your country, because we're talking about people collaborating uh, or at least uh, uniting for, for a good of their community. And I think uh, information should flow between these partners uh, in order to have best practices and to emulate the, the good work and to learn from the best. Well, so, I be, before we end, uh, and I hate to end because I would love to go even to deeper conversations around these different case studies, but we don't have much time, so I'm going to have to visit uh, Switzerland and sit down and have a cup of... Uh, of uh, wine or beer or whatever you drink, uh, or tea maybe, I guess, and, and really dig into some of these uh, case studies. But I just want to expand the conversation a little bit to one other topic, that is um, the, the younger generation, the youth. Uh, we are at a place where you have tension, not tension, but you have misagreement or disagreement between the different generation, generation X, Y, Z, millennials, you know, baby boomers and all of that. And when you look at the world today, you have a lot of young people who feel that their voices are not being heard, uh, especially young people in, say, in, in Africa, uh, in Latin America, where I know you've spent some time, uh, even parts of Asia. So what message would you give to leaders so that they can apply some of the approaches in your book in terms of how they communicate with young people to get them more involved in the development and to be involved in the process of leading the world? What messages would you give, one, to the, to the leaders, but also to the young people? I think to the leaders, I would say, listen, because communicating with the young people is very often uh, applied in practice by blarbing stuff at young people, you know, just sending out messages to young people, but not allowing for the feedback of the young people. 
I think uh, we should ask the young people more questions. I think they're very concerned about the future of our planet, for example, because it's theirs. <laughs> so we should really listen to them and listen deeply and, and with empathy. Uh, so I think that's the one for the leaders. Just listen and dare to ask the young people. They have great ideas. They have great ideas. And you are just the guardian of, of the, the world we're passing on to them. So yeah, involve them as soon as possible by asking them the silly questions maybe, or big questions. They, they have an opinion. Uh, they're rarely heard. And I think we should really listen to them because they're the future. Uh, so that's for the leaders. And for the young people, uh, find the first person that will listen to you. Express yourself, refine your communication, refine what you wish to say, encapsulate it well, and go out there and put it out. You know, put it out to the first person that will listen to you. And this will maybe, this person will get your message to the next person. Uh, just try to find a way of joining the conversation. There's, there were many people, very young people at this complexity weekend, which, which was great. They were like 18, 19, which is, I did not think of complexity when I was 18, I must say. <laughs> and, and you're like, this is fantastic. And they kept saying, oh, I'm still so young, but I still think, blah, blah, blah. And I thought that was the best way to, to, to do it. You know, don't don't be shy. It's not because you're young that whatever you have to say is not formed. Uh, I think uh, young people just just take it out there, and there there to do it. So to wrap things up, uh, I have two short questions which may have long answers, uh, but that's okay. Uh, I think the first one, though, as we this has been a fascinating conversation, Michaela, and I and I definitely will. Will 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 commit to you that I will visit Switzerland and and, and have a follow up conversation with you on this because I think there's a lot to learn here. So I'm trying to link biomimicry in terms of communication to how we view the planet. Uh, you talk about the transform trans uh, the transformal of our 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 life of species DNA and all of that. Um, so when I read the book and I look at nature as I look out outside my window, I see a tree. Um, what should I be thinking? And I'm using me here, but in general, as people read the book, how should reading the book help us to embrace and, and recognize the significance of nature in a way that we have not done? I think biomimicry, once you've touched it, or once it has touched you, uh, will change your lens around things around you. Uh, you will look at nature in a different way. You know, a little bit like, people who are afraid of spiders because they think they're disgusting or they're kind of scary. If you really look at them up close, they're quite beautiful. And you, you, you can overwind this, this kind of disgust by looking at how amazing the adaptations are and all these eyes, what, they, what purpose they serve and how they allow for, for, for the existence of these amazing creatures. And all of a sudden you don't think they're disgusting anymore. You, you, you cannot... You cannot destroy something that you've observed from up close. So I hope everybody looks at nature and then cannot destroy it anymore. Well, you know, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because as I mentioned to you earlier when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, my wife and I just sort of this garden we're trying to put together, but she's already started planting some trees. I mean, some, some fruits and vegetables, right? And so uh, we've now had the, the opportunity to harvest uh, some zucchini and, 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 and some cucumber from this little thing she planted. And it's amazing how when you're eating something like you've planted, you have a whole different perspective about it and you view it differently. So uh, yeah, I think certainly biomimicry should change the minds of how people embrace and see nature. Final question is about what's next for Michaela in the context of biomimicry. Uh, the book, I think, is one I would recommend anyone who hasn't gotten it to get it and read it because it would just give you a different perspective, whether you're a corporate leader, an executive. I found it very refreshing to read because it gives you some food for thought. But what's next for you now? Because now you've unleashed a whole new world in terms of how we communicate. What's on the project plan for you going forward? Yeah, you know, I, I wrote this book quite quickly. Uh, I wrote it within three months. Uh, then uh, all of a sudden I looked at my internet site 
and my consultancy firm, my communication consultancy firm. And I was like, I'm not walking the talk here. So now I have to do, to bioinfuse all my business processes and I have to do this metamorphosis of having all my processes being conducive to life and bio-inspired. And that's the work I'm doing right now. And uh, I guess my internet site will be up with a new version very soon. And I'm very excited about this. And maybe a book about business processes, biomimic business processes is also somewhere on the shelf. Uh, have, you, in the have, back you, have you thought about, as you were speaking, and I'm sorry because your answer gave me another question, but that's how it goes on the podcast. Have you thought about the idea of a book on leadership from a biomimicry perspective? Because leaders are supposed to be communicators. And I would argue perhaps that one of the challenges we're facing in the world today is that leaders are not good communicators in some cases, right? And so what would be interesting to do is to see how can leaders benefit from being able to learn from biomimicry uh, to see you know, some of these patterns from nature and see how they can be applied to our real world. You're giving me an idea. This is bad. This is bad because I'm going to write another book now. I would like to write, write a book about leadership and governance inspired, hey. inspired by, by animal societies. I think it will be needed. I think it's needed. And I think the reason why you prompted the question when you gave your last answer is because the world is going through major transformation. And I think uh, leadership is going to be key if we're going to be successful and uh, we can learn from nature. It's not about, it's not about leading. In fact, I think some of the things you would find in nature, and I know nothing about this because I'm not a biomimicry expert, but I would assume that some of the best leaders in nature are followers, they are empathetic, they are caring, they are protective of their species in ways that leaders today do not always ex exemplify. So there are a lot there that I think we can learn from that. I would love to investigate this. <laughs> well, please go ahead and do it. And uh, if you ever need someone to pick a brain on when it comes to uh, leadership, give me a call. I I'm not one who will say I know it all because you said two things that I think requires very good study. You said deep listening, mm -hmm. and you used the word empathy. And deep listening is something I think we all need to master if we're going to be successful. So I, I greatly appreciate you bringing that up. And it's really been a pleasure having you as part of this global podcast series and wish you all the best in your upcoming projects, especially the one on leadership and governance. Thanks so much, Lawrence. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org slash international.